The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning, 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. As a human race, we're very drawn to greatness. We're drawn to it. As a culture, it's, it's especially we're drawn to greatness. Whenever there's someone who's excelling at what they do, it's an athlete, it's a, someone who makes movies, a musical artist, a scientist, when they do something great, immediately we feel the compulsion to compare them to other great people. How do they stack up with other great people? If it's an athlete or a coach who does some great feat, now we want to know, okay, but where do they stack up with other historical coaches or athletes? Or where are they one of the best? Or where do they rank? And so we, we love top 10 lists or top 100 greatest rock bands of all time or greatest explorers of all time. We just, we're drawn to greatness and to the point where, and this is true of human beings in general. I mean, even throughout history, cultures, they, we, they have legends, they have stories and statues, and they celebrate, they have songs and poems about great people that they, that they look up to and revere. We're drawn to greatness. And you can even see it, there's almost, it's so wired into us that there's almost a physiological response that can happen to us. For example, think back to when the Beatles were in their heyday, and they come to the United States, and there were young women who were actually fainting when they saw the Beatles. You have, uh, I was watching a documentary on the inner workings of the White House, and there were, uh, the, the president's aides were talking about this interesting phenomenon that happened, that when people walked into the Oval Office to see the president, Famous people, educated people, successful people, world-class people. There was something about standing in the Oval Office, seeing the presidential seal there, looking eyeball to eyeball with the leader of the free world, that they all of a sudden just get nervous and tongue-tied and they can't get words out. I mean, competent people that have been in stressful situations, there's just something about the gravity that actually has a physiological uh, impact on them. Now, I had a, a similar experience uh, like this myself, I was at an event uh, once, and I uh, was told that Don Shula was actually present at this event. So after I stopped screaming like an eight-year-old, I decided that I would approach Don Shula. I, I wanted to just—I didn't want his autograph. I just wanted to tell him how much I just appreciate, you know, the coach and all that he's done. So I just pick myself up, and I go over, and I approach Don Shula, and, um, you know, excuse me, and the conversation went something like this. I'm your biggest fan. Football. Dolphins. I love you. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened next. There's a possibility that I was on the ground holding his ankles. I don't, security had dragged me away at that point. I don't know really what happened next. But we are drawn to greatness to the point that there can actually be a physiological response when we're in the presence of greatness. Now, why is that true? I mean, throughout humanity, it's not just our culture, throughout humanity, why is there something in us that is wired to be drawn towards greatness? What is that? It's an impulse, something that makes us drawn to greatness. It's, it's wired inside of us. We're going to take a look at a passage that talks 
about this in kind of a dramatic way. Um, if you want to turn in your booklet, you can look at part three, the sermon guide. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to start in verse one. Um, if you missed the first two parts of our series, Rescue 119, Mathetes, and then Rescue, let me just give you a little bit of a background. Um, there were these crowds of people that followed Jesus. He's well known as his ministry progressed. There are crowds of people that followed Jesus. But within those crowds, there was a set group called Mathetes. It's a Greek word, Mathetes. Let's say that together. Mathetes. Pretty good. Let's try it one more time. Mathetes. It's this Greek word that was not uncommon at that time period, and it described people who followed after a leader, a teacher, could have been a rabbi or a philosopher. They would follow along a leader like that. But they weren't just simply saying, hey, I want you to coach me or mentor me. They were saying something more dramatic than that. They were saying, I want to be just like you. I want to be you. And they would spend their lives traveling around that leader. Well, Jesus looked at his mathetes, and he said, okay, if you want to be like me, then understand this, the most fundamental thing about me is that I've given my life completely up to God. In obedience, I am giving my life for the sake of this world. I'm offering up my life for the sake of this world. And he looked at these mathetes who said, I want to be like you. And he said, if that's what you want, then come on and follow me. He says, if you want to be my mathetes, you've got to take up your own cross and follow me. So we've been talking about this idea of mathetes and how Jesus, when he left, he looked at his mathetes and said, go make more mathetes. And that's what a follower of Christ is, or how we sometimes translate that word as disciple. We, we're people who are saying, it's an all or nothing. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I'm going to give up my life. So, so what, are, what does this mathetes idea mean? And we're breaking it down, and there's three attributes of a mathetes. A mathetes is rescued, a mathetes is awestruck, and a mathetes is mobilized. Last week we talked about rescued, and this morning we're going to be talking about awestruck. So look with me in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It says this, <clears throat> And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, I just want to just pause briefly on this first verse. I want you to notice he takes Peter, James, and John. These are people who are, are Jesus' mathetes. They are saying, I'm following after you. And, and of his mathetes, this is kind of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he's taking them up a high mountain. I just want you to see one detail before we keep going. It says, after six days, the little math quiz if it's after six days, what day is it they're going up on the mountain? Very good. Okay, I was a little concerned for a second. Seventh day, that is true. They are traveling up the mountain on the seventh day. Just let that simmer for a second. Let's keep going. Now, this next two verses, these are sometimes the type of verses that we just kind of yawn through. Verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay, uh, what? Let's look back at this. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay, this is probably the freakiest moment in history. I want you to imagine. I mean, look at these things that happen. The first thing is he transfigures. I want you to imagine you're standing there with your friend at the mall and you're just talking with him. And all of a sudden, they like, they're like, yeah, and then I decided to go down to this door. And then they transfigure before you. They become like seven feet tall and their face looks different. That would be terrifying. He transfigures before them. I mean, that alone, I'm surprised they didn't run back down the mountain. He transfigures. He, he looks different. It says one of the things he, he looks different, it says his face shines, not like a flashlight. Not like an LED light, not a floodlight. It shines like the sun. Okay, as most of us know, you can, if you stare at the sun for very long, you will have permanent eye damage. Scientists say that after uh, 100 seconds, you'll have irreparable damage to your eyes if you stare at the sun. They say, but most people, they can't bear the pain to stare at the sun for more than a few seconds. We, we know staring at the sun, because it's so painful, uh, we know intuitively that it's doing damage to our eyes. Well, the only things we know about Jesus' figure that's been transfigured, his presence, is um, that he transfigured, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes were white as light. And I wonder if, that, if that's the only reason, only things we know. We didn't know, we don't know anything about his beard. Did it all of a sudden get like real long and white? Did his hair stand out on its end? We don't know anything else about, did he get real tall? We don't know anything else about that. And I'm wondering if the reason is because they could no longer look directly at him. It's transfigured. His face is a blinding white light. And then it says, blinding like the sun, and then his clothes even. Now, we always picture Jesus, you always see pictures painted or drawn of Jesus, and he's already in a white robe. And we have no idea what color clothes he was wearing. It might have been kind of like a rough brown cloak that he was wearing or a tunic. But what we know is his clothes went white, but not just like really, really bleached white, like just from the dry cleaner. It's like, they're like light. Like light is shining, not reflecting off of him, shining out of him. All right, if that's not terrifying enough, Moses and Elijah appear. By the way, they're dead. Moses and Elijah appear and start talking with Jesus. All right, let's just kind of get the significance here. Okay, if you could pick any two figures from the Bible to stand there that are the most significant to stand there with Jesus, this may be the two most significant. Okay, if you are really into rock and roll, it'd be like you go up on a mountain and you meet with John Lennon and Elvis Presley. Okay, like if you're really into science, it's like you just hang out a little bit with Isaac Newton and Einstein and you just discuss some things, okay? Baseball, it's like Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. You go up on a mountain and you meet with them. All right, that was a baseball analogy. You gotta give me credit. I had to dig deep for that one. You gotta give me something, okay? All right, it's like... Country music, okay? You go up on the mountain and well, I guess there's nobody there. I can't think of anyone that would be up there for I, nothing comes to mind. Okay, it's like this is, it's like the best of the best, okay? There is up on the mountain meeting with Jesus. All right, why is it Elijah and Moses? Okay, why are they like the key? Okay, at this time, remember the New Testament hasn't been written. 
So the scripture, God's words that are currently on the earth is what we call the Old Testament. But what they called the Old Testament most often was they called it the law and the prophets. They summarized the entire Old Testament like that, the law and the prophets. So you've got Moses, who's the guy, remember he goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, maybe you've seen this depicted before. He goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. Moses is the one who receives the law. He writes it down. He represents the law. Then you have all of the prophets, and the greatest prophet among them is Elijah. You've got these two guys showing up. Jesus goes to the top of the mountain to meet with these two guys, but here's the difference. It's not like he's going up and getting scientific advice from Einstein and Isaac Newton. He's going up. Uh, Moses and uh, Elijah are there, and they are subordinate to him. And they're talking. Can you imagine what they might have been talking about? I mean, that's one conversation. Wouldn't you love to just listen in and hear what they were dialoguing about? Don't you wish Matthew just gave us a little clue as to what, they're ta- what, what they were discussing? Maybe it was how everything in the Old Testament ultimately pointed to Jesus. In Genesis, you've got Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and there's a serpent that, the, that is representative of the devil, that the devil is in this serpent, and at the end, God says, yes, but there will come a seed of the woman who will defeat the serpent. In other words, there will come a child from the line of this woman who will one day defeat the devil in the beginning in Genesis. And who is that? That's Jesus. In Exodus, they needed a deliverer who would be raised up and lead his people out of slavery. It was Moses, but that's pointing to a true Moses, Jesus, who would come along. He'd be the deliverer. He would lead his people out of the slavery of sin. There was, you see in the law, you see there was this Passover sacrificial lamb who had to die, and then the blood would be spread over the doorposts of every home of God's people. And that pointed to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. His blood covers over us, and we're saved from death. It's, it's the, the tabernacle, it was this tent that God dwelled in this tent that they went around. It was where the center of their worship, where God dwelled in this tent as they traveled through the wilderness in this tabernacle. Well, John says that Jesus tabernacled among us. In other words, this flesh, inside that flesh, that God's presence was there. Jesus was God in the flesh. You have in Joshua, he's this incredible warrior who defeats all of God's enemies for God's people, but one day the true Yeshua, Jesus, the name is the same, Jesus will come and he will be this warrior who will defeat God's enemies, death and sin and evil. You've got judges, you've got these deliverers who rise up, but a true deliverer would come in Jesus. You've got Ruth, a kinsman redeemer, who, who would be this, this kinsman who will come in and raise us up from our lowest state? What well, would be Jesus? You've got the son of David who one day will come. You've got the prophets who say there'll be a ruler raised up in Bethlehem, will be born of a virgin. You have this, these prophets saying one day will come a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, and he'll be a suffering servant. See, it's all pointing to Jesus. This scripture that has been given, the Old Testament that was given to Israel, God's people, was not just for the sake of his people. It was for the sake of the whole world that they might know God. And it's all preparing for one man. Jesus walks up on the mountain. Elijah and Moses are standing there. And what it's communicating is Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Do you realize what it's saying? 
He is God's message to humanity. There, our salvation. It's key. Unlocks it all. Is a person, and his name is Jesus. Okay, let's see what their response is. We're going to look at verse four. Excuse me. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I want you to look at this verse here. And and Peter, you can tell he's feeling intimidated. He offers to make tents. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why does he offer to make tents. Some suggest, well, this is such a powerful moment that he's wanting to build structures, meaning he wants to stay on this mountain and stay in the presence of God. Others note that the actual word that Peter uses is the word tabernacle. In other words, he's recognizing the presence of God, wants to build a tabernacle for them to live in. In other words, it's like their their glory is so much, it's almost like they want to sheath the glory in these tents. Okay, there's different interpretations of this, but here's the part that I want you to notice. I want you to notice his first line there. Did you notice he said, it's good that we're here. It gives us a window. I want you to see, it gives us a window of how intimidated he is. He's saying, okay, Jesus and wow, that's Moses and that's Elijah and we've never seen Jesus look like that. What the heck are we doing here? It's almost like he's like inside searching for some kind of significance and value and like, well, what can we do to add to the situation? Maybe we could build tents. That's like, yeah, we can build, I could build a tent. Can you build a tent? Maybe we could build tents for these guys. We can contribute. You can tell that they're feeling intimidated and nowhere near as intimidated as they're about to be. Look at verse five. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They're standing on the mountain. If it wasn't terrifying enough that Jesus is transfigured, Moses and Elijah appear. They're trying to put Peter, not surprisingly, speaks up, trying to find some significance and some value. And did you notice that God interrupts him? While he's still speaking, it says a cloud comes down around them. Okay, did it just get like really foggy? Did the weather change? What's happening here? There's several times in the Bible where we see God's presence like a cloud. The first time when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the law, the Ten Commandments and the law, it says God's presence comes down on the mountain and it's covered like a cloud. But here's what God says to Moses. Don't let anyone even set foot on the mountain. Don't let them touch the mountain or they'll probably die. They will die, not probably. They will die. But come on up here, Moses. Then there's a, a moment when Solomon builds a temple for God. It's the first time God has a temple like this built for him. Solomon builds a temple and he's dedicating it. And it says smoke fills the temple so much so that the priests, that's the ones that are sanctioned to be in God's presence, the priests run out of the temple afraid for their lives. 
Isaiah has a vision. It's just a vision. It's not even literally happening. It's a vision where he's standing in God's presence, and it says God speaks. It says the earth shakes, and the entire place is filled with smoke, just consumed with smoke. And he says, and I said, woe is me, I am undone. In other words, what I think this means is I'm feeling like my molecules may just burst apart because the one that's holding them together just spoke. Okay, what is this cloud? There's a couple options here. It could be that God's presence is just so engulfing and enveloping that humans describe it as a cloud or smoke. Or the other option is, it may be because God knows if he were to just be there as presence in front of humanity, we would die. He wraps smoke or a cloud around us to protect us in those instances with those individuals. Peter, James, and John, this cloud comes over them, and the voice of God speaks. And what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The ultimate endorsement of Jesus from God the Father. This is my son. I am pleased in him. And then he says, listen to him. I'm betting they probably did after that. Listen to them, and what was their response? They threw themselves on their faces. They were terrified. Like, let's just sit on that for a second. What was that like? Peter's talking, and all of a sudden, like, he just loses his breath. They all, in an instant, are on the ground. They're just, maybe they're just trembling uncontrollably. I'm digging their foreheads into the dirt. I mean, just, they're terrified. This is not a pleasant situation. There's just, maybe they're shaking, maybe uncontrollably just crying. Maybe their minds just immediately go blank. They just are just full of terror on their faces as God speaks. And what happens next? Let's finish this passage up. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They're on the ground. We, we don't know how long they're on the ground. It's interesting. It says, Jesus says, Rise and have no fear. And I, I think it's interesting. It may be significant. It doesn't say, And then they got up. It says, And then when they rose, where they just couldn't move for like an hour. Maybe James was the first one to look up and he just couldn't stop shaking. He still couldn't speak. Maybe Peter just couldn't stop just uncontrollably sobbing on the ground out of just terror. But when they look up, they see only Jesus. And he says, rise and have no fear. Let's just think about this passage. What is this trying to tell us? They get a glimpse of who Jesus really is in a moment. They get a glimpse of who it is that they're dealing with. Can I just ask you a question? Think about this. They'd seen Jesus walk on water. They'd seen him heal people, the blind, the sick. They'd seen people. They'd seen him raise a little girl up from the dead that everyone else thought was was dead and gone and nothing else going to happen. They'd seen him do incredible things. But this moment, they see for a glimpse of who he really is. He's transfigured before them. Just think about this. Do you think they ever handled Jesus the same after that? 
God said, listen to him. Do you think that just rang in their ears for the rest of their lives? I mean, think about this. What do you think it was like the next time they had summoned the courage to pray to God? Did it take them a week to even dare? Did it take them two weeks and the entire time they're just shaking? What was it like the first time that they, they tried to bow their heads and tried to engage God and ask a request of God or, or even just utter his name? I mean, what was that like the next time that happened? Do you think they were ever the same when they realized they got a glimpse of who it is that they're dealing with? Christian, let me ask you a question. Do we need Jesus transfigured in our minds? Could it be that out of his mercy, God gave us the story so that because he knows we're not capable of actually handling going through that ourselves? Sometimes we're tempted to say, you know, it'd be so much easier if just God could just appear right in front of me. You realize we would die? Like our, our, our atoms would just evaporate? We couldn't handle that? Realize maybe it's God's mercy that right now, as he's at work in us, that we have to deal with him in faith. It's his protection on us. See, they were probably never the same. And we have this, this thing going on in humanity where we're wired to be drawn to greatness. And maybe the reason that that's so in us is because we're wired for worship. There's one great being that we're intended to be drawn to. And there's so many other things in this world that's, oh, look at this, and oh, look at this, and, and worship that, and that's great, and I want more of this. But there's one being that it should be all-encompassing. If we know, knew who he was, we would be utterly and perpetually awestruck. We're talking about Jesus is calling us to be mathetes. And a mathetes is an all-or-nothing situation. We've been unpacking as to why. Well, we talked about last week because we're rescued. And if Jesus is rescuing our eternity, it's only logical that we give him this life. But it's also, part of the reason it's an all-or-nothing situation is when we see Jesus, we are perpetually awestruck. We're awestruck by who he is, and, and that helps us understand who God is, and we realize who we are before God. And of course, it's an all-or-nothing situation when I realize who God is. Inside your booklet, there's a fill-in-the-blank, and it says this. A mathetes is perpetually awestruck, and it drives his or her life. We are driven by an understanding of who God is, and it perpetually, perpetually creates awe in our hearts. And that worship drives our entire life. Christian, Mathetes, as we're talking about these different attributes, you know, we, we can understand rescued. We understand, okay, we need to be rescued by Jesus. That's not as hard to understand. And, and we can understand uh, the, the third one, mobilized. We, we get the basics of that. But you know the one we struggle with the most, the one that's, that maybe we just lose track of the easiest is the fact that we're supposed to live lives that are awestruck perpetually by God, more and more drawn to him, more and more at awe of who he is. And there's so many things distracting us in this life from that. We forget that we forget who he is. 
Let's break this down. There's three ways that we're awestruck. The first thing, being awestruck means fear is warranted. Look at these disciples. They, when they get the closer to the presence of God, their instinct is to be on their faces before God. Terrified is what it says. Fear is warranted. We're standing before the one who's keeping our hearts beating. He's keeping our molecules together. He's controlling galaxies. He's orchestrating history. He's working in our lives. We're standing before the Almighty. Fear is warranted. Proverbs says, um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, you want to know, if you had to learn one truth first in this world, it'd be that God is worth fearing. Well, wait, I heard somewhere that that really just means like respect him, respect God. Well, all I know is that everyone that's been in the presence of God through the Bible feel like they're about to die. So call it respect, call it fear, call it whatever you want, but fear is warranted if we knew who God was. But who takes away that fear? Who looked at the disciples and lifted their faces and said, have no fear? It's Jesus. Because when we stand before God, the only reason that we would even have the courage to utter a prayer is because Jesus washed away our sins. We were declared holy, and we can now boldly go to the throne of God and utter a prayer in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus. When we, when we open our eyes after we've encountered God, all we see is Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And because of that, all the wrath we deserve has been ex completely expunged on Jesus. And all that's left from God is his love. Fear is warranted, but Jesus takes it away. Fear is warranted, but the other thing is satisfaction is found. One of the reasons we're awestruck is because satisfaction is found in God. Did you notice it says that they go up the mountain on the seventh day, Jesus with his disciples? It's actually a really interesting allusion to the story of Moses going up the mountain to get the law. It says the exact same thing after six days. G, uh, Moses goes up, up Mount Sinai with the cloud. And what's so significant about that? Jesus and Moses are going up these mountains on the seventh day, the day set aside for rest. Because the ways of God, the presence of God, is the rest our soul is longing for. I sat next to a woman on the plane a little while ago, and she was saying, look, I went to church when I was young, but I just walked away. I need evidence of who God is. I just feel like there's no evidence of who he is. And I'm sitting next to her. We're both kind of looking straight ahead, and, and um, she's asking me questions, and, and I'm just praying kind of silently in my heart, God, just direct me. What are you doing with this person? And so I just kind of said, I kind of fumbled through the conversation, but I, I said this. I said, well, you know, one of the greatest evidences is that one person said that we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. I think one of the most incredible evidences for God is we can look around and see that people are trying to put that in their hearts. They're trying to shove in other things in that God-shaped hole. And the more they try, the more it slips through their fingers. It's like the person who's going after money. And the harder they hold on to money, the less they actually appreciate it. And the more their relationships and the rest of their life deteriorates. And then they might not even be able to hold on to money anyway. I said, it's the person who's trying to take relationships and put it in the God-shaped hole in their life. It's like they're, the tighter they hold to these relationships, the more they're choking those relationships and they don't work and they end up losing the thing that they're grasping for. But our hearts are made to find our rest and our satisfaction in the person of God, our creator, the most significant relationship we could possibly have. 
And he's calling us to himself. And I finished talking, and I looked over, and I, and I had no idea, you know, is this what you're doing, God? And I looked over, and she's trying to discreetly wipe tears away from her eyes. Because that's all of our story. Satisfaction in the person of God is found. And the third thing, being awestruck means disobedience is unthinkable. God says, listen to him. And can you imagine the disciples probably had heard that in their mind, be unthinkable to not when the voice of the creator says to, be unthinkable to disobey. See, the more we're awestruck by God and who he is and by what Jesus did and how much he loves us, the more we're awestruck by God, the more we're like, it would be, I would be an idiot to not follow his plan. He's the creator. He wired this plan and he says, this is how humanity is going to thrive. Why would I say, God, I don't like your plan. I'm going to do my own plan. I don't like your plan for relationships or my time or my finances or my sex. My, I don't have time for any of that other thing. I'm going to handle things my way. Why, how could I possibly do that when I'm awestruck by the creator of the universe? Church, what we're called to do, and I think it's the hardest of all the three of being rescued, being awestruck, and being mobilized, the hardest one is staying perpetually awestruck. Do you know that's why we gather together every week, why Christians have said, you know, it's a good idea that we gather and worship together once a week throughout history. Do you know why we do that? It's not because God's taking attendance and is going to give a citizenship award one day in heaven. It's because we need this. We need the reset button. That's why we sing, singing on Sunday morning. It's not like the previews before the, the movie starts. We sing. We need to declare these, these, these truths, and we need to reset our thinking. Oh, my goodness, you're God. Why would I question you? Why would I, why I struggle to trust you? Why would I struggle to obey you? You're God. We need to per perpetually change. That's why we meet together in community groups. That's why we meet together in men's ministry and women's ministry. That's why we come together. We need, I need to be reminded of what God's doing in your life and be reminded he's working in my life. Parents, is there another more important thing you could do for your kids than get them in kids' ministry and student ministry around other believers so they can stir up an awe for God? That's why we spend time, where we Christians throughout the generations have said, okay, I need to regularly stop, spend time with God on my own. Now, you may be saying, you know what, I, I've tried that. I've tried to read the Bible and pray, and I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to do that. And um, just I want to take a quick second and let you know this, this morning we're actually unveiling a new thing uh, in our church facility here. We have just, uh, we're opening up as an open house this morning, a resource center. It's in the uh, back room. I want you to go see it after the service. And here's what we've done. Because it's so important to perpetually stir up awe in our lives, we've got resources for you. So you're saying, okay, I don't know what to do. We've got resources for you in that back resource. And you're going to go out into this hallway. You're going to go back through the multi-purpose room and you'll see the back room. I want you to go check it out. And you'll see books in there and resources. And you'll see books like this. This is actually, you'll see a decal up on the wall with QR codes that you can go up and you can scan them. It'll take you right to uh, Amazon.com and you can check out. There's books about family. There's books about studying the Bible. There's books about learning to worship God. There's books to inspire you. Why? Because our role as Mathetes is to perpetually stir up awe in our lives. We're gonna, um, in a few minutes, we're gonna close with a song, but before we do that, I wanna just uh, share a story with you, actually two stories. You saw a little bit of it 
at the beginning of our time together, two stories, and they're, they're great because they, they uh, parallel each other in an interesting way. The story of Marisol and Dennis, and they have two different backgrounds, but you watch how they go from thinking, they, why would I want to be near God? Why do I need God? And they encounter God, and on the other side, they realize how amazing and alive and real God is in their life. You heard that great quote Dennis said in the opener. He said, man, I thought if I was going to cross over and follow Jesus, the party would be over. I want you to see these stories. I want you to notice the different background. One was saying, man, I don't know if I even need God. And the other was saying, I so need God. I just don't know if God wants me. I want you to check out these two stories. My life before I became a Christian was just living day by day, working, partying, uh, you know, having fun my own way, and just doing things that were no good. I live all my life thinking that I was perfect, that I was okay that I didn't have to ask God to forgive me because I didn't commit any sin that I thought, you know, for me, I was not a sinner. And, um, and I thought I was okay and that I could do everything on my own. And yes, I believe in God, but I didn't let Him be in control of my life. And, um, and because of that, I ended up being suffering a lot of depression, being sad, frustrated, very resent, resentful to toward people and things. I couldn't forgive and I couldn't forget. I had that in my heart. That night I was drinking and drugging and, and I got home. At that moment, I got on my knees and I begged God to accept me. I beg God to fix me. I beg God to do his work in me. But as I started praying, I started crying. I started uh, sweating, crying. Uh, I was on my knees for, I would have to say, at least an hour of asking God for forgiveness that I wasn't going to live my life like that anymore that if he got me out of this one, I would, you know, straighten up. And uh, an hour later, I was a different, total different man. And that to me amazes me because God is really, really alive. So there was a moment that I couldn't take it anymore and I was very depressed and and at that moment I, I, I I felt like I needed to ask God to forgive me and to heal my heart. And it was so amazing because it was like, I really, it was just amazing. I felt like if somebody really had put a, a hand in my heart because it felt, it felt like a relief. Like if somebody had removed a heavy jacket out of my shoulder, I felt like really light and in peace. And I, and, and I said, oh my God, this is amazing. You are real. That was the moment that I said, you really assist. You are real and you really care for all of us. You care for me, that you, that you took care of my, of my uh, broken heart. And now I have a new heart. That's the moment I realized that he did care for each 
person in this planet, that he wasn't that far away, that he was really close. And, uh, and that's what really changed my whole life. The most amazing thing, besides everything that he's done for me, is that he'll never leave you. No matter what you do, that amazes me. Absolutely. I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you can relate to one of those stories. Maybe you say, look, I, I don't know if I've ever felt like I needed God. I think I got life pretty well squared away. Did you know there's something not right, something wrong? Maybe you say, oh, I'm so, you don't understand, I'm so far from God, I just don't know that God would welcome me back. Maybe you're in one of those two places. Can you just hear this truth this morning? This is a God whose fear is warranted. If he, we were to stand before him, I mean, we, we'd probably, he says that we would die. But this is how wonderful and amazing this God is. This awesome God, exhausted all that is fearful about him, all of his wrath on the person of Jesus. And he said, if you accept Jesus as your Savior, that he died for you, accept that moment that was done on your behalf, there's nothing left for you but love. Maybe you say this morning you're, you're challenged because you've just been kind of dabbling and playing with an almighty, awesome God. And you're convicted of that this morning. Then make it right today, please. Make it right today, because we'll all stand before him one day. Make it right today, if that's you. I want to just pray this prayer with you together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Just pray this simple prayer. God, I realize I don't deserve to even speak to you. I'm far from you. Live a life that's blasphemous and offensive to you, the almighty ruler of the universe. But somehow you love me anyway and you send Jesus to take my sins away and wash me clean. Thank you. I accept what Jesus did. I realize it's not about the good that I do, but it's about what Jesus did on the cross. I accept that. Thank you for saving me once and for all. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you'd like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.